This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go me our soul is like it's unbound it's limitless but we will use words to limit ourselves when people stop believing that somebody's got your back or superman's coming we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered courageous participation attracts positive things i'm gwyneth paltrow And this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. My guest today is Dr. Carl Hart. Carl Hart is the psychology department chair at Columbia University, a researcher on addiction and drug use on the brain, and the author of the fascinating and challenging book, Drug Use for Grownups. Hart is an advocate for rational drug policy, and his book makes a case for legalization and regulation of all drugs. He draws on decades of research, history, and personal experience. Today we talk about why so many people have trouble talking about drug use. Hart explains the narratives that have shaped public thinking and why our country's drug problem aren't the drugs themselves. He also shares how his perspective evolved after studying and experimenting with drugs himself. He explains the differences between decriminalization, legalization, and regulation, and why choice and freedom is fundamental to humanity and the steps we can take towards a more hospitable and caring society. We also talk about what responsible drug use really means and what we get wrong about addiction. Hart is realistic and free of judgment, and the work he's doing to normalize drug use is important. I'm excited to share this perspective with you today. So let's get to my chat with Carl Hart. You got into the neuroscience of drug use because you wanted to understand the addiction epidemic, the addiction model that was really just ripping apart where you had come from. And so could you share a little bit about the ecosystem of your childhood and and how it shaped you and brought you to this work? I'm born in 1966, and so growing up in the late 60s, early 70s, 
Black America, being a Black person in America, most likely you would be living in a Black community that was predominantly Black. My community, South Florida, Miami, it was resource poor, but rich in so many other things. But it was hard for me to see how rich it was in things like the close-knit sort of community that you have and people took care of you in the community. And the way justice was melded out in the community, it was swift, it was fair. And so those kind of things, I didn't really recognize the value of those things until like I became like 40 or 50 years old. But certainly that time in the community, I was thinking that listening to what everybody else was saying and what we were being told is that drugs were the reason for the limited resources. People didn't have jobs because of drugs. People were in jail because of drugs. People and their addictions caused all these problems. And so naturally I wanted to make sure that I did my part in helping uh, out the community. So I thought if I studied drug addiction, figure out how the brain is working or responding uh, to these drugs, then maybe I can come up with some treatments and those treatments would improve my community is what I thought. And that's what I did for the, you know, from 1990 is when I started studying drugs from that period until now. So we're talking about over 30 years. And over the course of that 30 year career, I realized, wait a second, drugs were not the major problem here. The major problem were things that have always been the problem and they're currently the problem now with this pandemic. People don't have jobs, healthcare, you have discrimination, you know, the police violence, all those things were happening in the community at the time, but we blame drugs. And then so that's why I'm kind of full circle. It's interesting to hear you call out those stressors or, or problems, the systemic racism, lack of jobs, you know, those, those are the problems, but somehow drugs found its way to be the culprit. Can you, can you speak to a little bit about how that narrative became inverted? One of the things that happened in the 80s was that our economy wasn't doing well in periods in the 80s. Like 1982, we had the highest level of unemployment. And so the population need want to know what's going on. Politicians like Ronald Reagan and then subsequently George Bush number one and then Bill Clinton, those politicians told people that drugs were the problem and they were going to solve that problem by taking the drugs out of your community. And one way you take drugs out of your community is you put more cops on the streets is what they told us. And so a lot of people cheered this, the vast majority of people cheered this. Meanwhile, Factories like uh, GM and other factories, automakers, they were leaving the country for cheaper labor. That meant those jobs were leaving too. Now you have these people who are making decent middle-class wages unemployed. So now you put them in security jobs, in law enforcement jobs, jobs that don't pay as well as they were making, and jobs that's dependent upon um, the incarceration of other Americans. And so then the war on drugs, if you will, this focus on drugs, became this jobs program. And then it became like the jobs program in the country, which it still is. And so now you can't get rid of it because it employs so many people. It employs the cops, the prison officials and the prison sort of guards in those communities where prisons are at the restaurants, the hotels, all of those things, they are dependent on the prison. People coming in to visit their loved ones and 
urine testing facilities, the popped up industries that cater to the war on drugs. And it's so big. Now, how do you get rid of it? Because when you get rid of it now, a lot of people lose jobs. And so those people who are working in those jobs, their lobbies are telling the congressmen that we need to have a war on drugs. You know, they don't say exactly that. They say drugs are so awful. And, and so the country has grown to believe that drugs are so awful because of all of this vested interest. Scientists like me, I got research grants. I got a PhD because of the war on drugs. We're all invested in this sort of thing. And we don't tell the public all of what I just said to you. And the public just thinks, oh, we have an overdose crisis. Not understanding that the overdose crisis is, I mean, that's so simple to fix. It's like people getting contaminated drugs is why you have an overdose crisis. The government can solve that problem by having a safe supply of drugs or simply making sure you have drug checking facilities where people can submit small amounts of their drugs to find out what's in them. And so that's not a difficult thing to fix, but it keeps, it's the shiny object that you uh, tell the public about and they focus on uh, so you can keep this big industry going. I mean, that is just so fascinating, especially this idea of the economy of the war on drugs. And it's interesting, I haven't heard it put this way before, but that that the system of incarceration is dependent on the fact that drugs are illegal and trying to police that at every level. Yes. And then people will say, well, most people behind bars are not there because of drug charges. And that is true. Uh, But the thing is, they get tracked because of drug charges. They get a blemish on their record first and you get put into the system and you become trackable. And that's how the war on drugs contribute to this massive industry or this mass incarceration. So without drugs, much of this goes away. So that makes me want to dig into to a quote, actually, from a New York Times article in 2016 that I want to read that you shared that was talking about psilocybin, but it really speaks to this narrative that you and I are talking about around how most of the public perceives drugs and, and the war on drugs versus who the actual users are and how the users are able to communicate their experience. So the quote is, typically the users of psilocybin are middle class or higher. They're well-educated and their use of the English language is more sophisticated than the typical heroin user. And what you'll often hear from the psychedelic enthusiasts is a lot of lofty talk about seeking higher planes of consciousness or religious transcendence or whatever. But here's the thing. A person doing heroin is often doing the exact same thing. They just don't have the same language to describe it. But ultimately, it's all about the pursuit of happiness, pleasure, or greater well-being. And I was, I was really struck by that quote, especially now, five years later, this idea of linguistics and language and ability to communicate one's experience of using any type of altering substance and how much that speaks to so much systemic oppression, race, racial, financial, otherwise. So I, can you speak a little bit to that quote and this idea of middle-class drug usage and and what we're really looking at. 
Yeah, you know, I was struck, uh, I don't know, a decade ago, actually 15 years, years now. yeah, maybe 15, 16 years ago, I was the best man in my PhD sort of co-student's wedding, uh, one of my good friends, uh, and he's a white guy, and I went to his wedding, and I was the only brother there, and so at the words or at the uh, maybe the bachelor party or something, we had cocaine or, and we were having a good time and so forth. And then his friends, I was listening to the language in terms of how they were describing what we were doing versus what cats on the street were doing to people from the other side of town who were black or, or didn't look like them. And they were justifying what we were doing as reaching for some higher plane or being at one with the universe. Whereas those other people were just, they just want to like be decadent and, and, and they're not doing what we're doing. I'm like, hold up, we're all doing the same thing. We just want to alter our consciousness, feel good. And, you know, maybe be at one or at peace with other people, the universe. It's the same thing. We may not use the same language. And, and so the more I listen to the new psychedelic language, it's that same conversation I was having with my friend's uh, friend at this uh, bachelor party. And it's a way to separate your activities from the activity of those undesired people, which is wrong. And so I wanted to point this out. I mean, I've used all of these drugs and I have language. I can say, I can do the middle-class thing and but when it, when it boils down to it, you know, I'm trying to be a better person, trying to have a good time. I don't want to be angry with folks. And this, that's what I'm doing. That's all I'm doing, you know, and my spirituality and those sorts of things. That's my own personal business. I, it's something that I may have found in some travels of the world that somebody else has not, but they found something else, but it's the same thing. And so I wanted to, I wanted to make sure people understand, like, please, do not rationalize those the importance of what they're doing away. Because the importance of what they're doing, somebody different from me, it's equally important as, as what I'm doing. And so I, I wanted to make sure we respect everybody's journey, whatever that is. In the 80s, early 90s in America, there was this feeling of, if you do drugs, you are bad. It's, it's a very strong binary. There is no gray area. And, you know, I think, especially with what you just shared and what I heard from this quote is that most people that are doing drugs are going to work, raising children, doing the next thing. I just, just start with the notion that the, the, the fact that people need to know that the illicit drug trade, just what we're talking about, is a multi-billion dollar industry annually. Every year, multi-billion dollars. Now, that's a lot of money. And that amount of money cannot be supported by poor people alone. That means that we have, that means that we have middle class and upper class folks who are really the bread and butter of this industry. They're the ones who are the main consumers. And we, we know this and, and no disrespect, that's fine. But we just want to make sure people understand that that's who are really using drugs. I mean, that's where I certainly have had most of my drug experience with middle to upper class friends and colleagues and so forth. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. 
This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, You know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. You say that we know that it's middle to upper class people who are using drugs, but I want to posit the idea that we might know this, but we definitely dissociate from that awareness. And so it's, there is just so much inequality and privilege within the usage of drugs, regardless of the class of drugs. You're absolutely right. I mean, so I tried to thread that throughout the book, but at the last chapter, I tried to ram that home to let people know, like, don't forget these are the people who are predominantly using drugs. Not that we need to vilify anybody. That is, that's not the point. I'm speaking to my people to come out of the closet. They are responsible. They're some of the, they are the pillars of our communities. They, they volunteer in their community. They take care of their families. They pay their taxes. They made a contribution to their community, to the world. And then, so I think like I'm 54. So I think damn, you're not free. And and I can't, I don't want to live a life where you are not free. It's like, you're not hurting anyone. You're not a bad person. Your work strikes me as a modern evolution of Afrofuturism because as a Black man, you are, who is in the diaspora, cosmological diaspora, physical diaspora, you're, you're imagining a future that is free from the oppression of white supremacy, especially in how, how it relates to drugs. The way I think about it is the Declaration of Independence. It's really a simple dark document and it's the founding document of the country, but it applies to all humans and it just, our humanity, that's all it is about It's about us being in this thing together, but living like you choose to live your life. You know, so you have the right for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as long as you're not preventing other people from doing the same. And that's your, your natural right. And that's the sort of ideal of this country. And other countries too have adopted this now. And so how I, what that says to me is that I have the right to live my life as I choose, and I must fight for you to do the same. You know, like I, I can't just be like, uh, I'm not getting vaccinated because I wanna do, I, this is because of me, only me. I have to think of you too. I can't prevent you from not enjoying your life if I get infected by being irresponsible, whatever. I have no right to do that because I'm impacting your life. So that's how, that, what, that's how, that's what's been guiding how I think about this. It's like, 
how are you doing? That's what I, w- I want to know. And how is my how is my behavior affecting you? And yeah. if my behavior is deleteriously impacting you, I got to change. Simply. That's it makes it so easy for me. Uh-oh. Yeah. But the, the problem is, is that people don't understand when you start talking about people's liberty, you know, and it's, oh, you're a libertarian. What? What is that? I mean, I, I care about how you are doing and how I'm doing that. And I want you to live your life like you choose to live your life, you know, as long as you know, you're not out here disrupting other people from doing the same. It's not a libertarian value. That's a, it's a fundamental value of humanity. How did you come to your own usage of drugs? Like, when did, how did that practice come forward for you? And, and why do you think that's important? And how, how has it informed your work? Yeah, so in the 80s, I was late teens, early 20s. And so, you know, Nancy Reagan was big. And so drugs were bad. And I believed all of that sort of stuff. And in my studies of drugs, trying to figure out why they were bad and what was going on, I discovered by looking at the research participants and and the data, discovered that, you know, when people take cocaine, they're euphoric, they're happy. When people take MDMA, they're they're happy. They're, you know, heroin, all these drugs. And then I'm thinking like, hold up, well, what's the problem? Then the problem is not the drugs, it's the psychosocial sort of environment in which these things are happening. Because when they're in our lab and we're seeing all these effects of drugs, it's it's beautiful. People get along, we place these demanding schedules on them and they meet them. And so I figured late in life after 40 discover i decided well i should try you know these things and know more about the, the drugs that i have been studying and publishing on for all these years and in in, in doing so traveled around the world and then you then i start to see that this is a this is a nice component to add to my life it enhanced my relationships with those who are close to me and I learned a little more about my, the, my area of study. And so it's one of these things that I do, drugs that is, just like I do with comedy. It's one of these areas where are things that are that's used to relieve stress, to decompress. How do you reconcile your capability to utilize something like heroin in the way that you would utilize going to see a stand-up comedy show or having, say, a glass of wine, how can you reconcile that with folks that would use a, the same substance and end up in a very different situation? And, and, and then just to kind of add to that as well, what is addiction? What is the delta between I use heroin as something to decompress, like going to see a comedy show, and I use heroin and I cannot function in my day-to-day life. The thing we have to think about first is like, addiction has almost nothing to do with drugs, but we act like addiction, the drug is the thing that keeps a grip on you. We even use it in our language. It has a grip on you as if it has some human qualities and it's an inert substance that needs a biological system to interact. That's so. The vast majority of people who use any drug are any drug, whether it's heroin, cocaine, MDMA, they're not addicted. So it tells us that 
when you're thinking about addiction, the people who have problems, then you have to look beyond the drug itself. So we think about, well, what is addiction? Addiction is when people fail to meet their obligations or they have these psychosocial disruptions, that is, they're not going to work, they're not interacting with their loved ones that they want to interact with as a result of the drug use, and they are distressed. So you have these disruptions in your functioning and you are distressed about these disruptions. That's addiction according to the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. So you can have disruptions and people are not distressed by them. So when I say disruptions, it's like, it's like you repeatedly fail to meet obligations like, oh, it's Thanksgiving, your family, uh, they're coming in, they always come in for these major holidays and you, and you, you fail to meet them because you're out doing cocaine. That's certainly a failure to meet that particular sort of obligation. And then so, but that wouldn't be like an endorsement of a symptom if it doesn't distress the person. Because the person may say, you know, my family, they are big Trump supporters and I'm not even subjecting myself to that nonsense. You know what I'm saying? And so the therapist has to make sure they understand the level of distress exhibited by the person. What's interesting to me is this relationship you're creating between distress and usage of a drug. And the distress that the person using the drug has to self-identify. And then what we haven't talked about is the distress that someone in the user's life is experiencing. Yeah, it has nothing to do with your partner, as long as you're not preventing your partner from enjoying their rights. Oftentimes, however, This is how we judge this. People say, what about the harm that you're doing to your loved ones? Now, if I am doing a drug and then I am, I don't know, having them physically attacking attacking my partner, that's a problem. Now, you know, I'm I'm impinging on their rights and all of those sorts of things. Uh, I I have no right to do that. And that, that clearly is a symptom of something. But just to problematize that a little bit more, because of just the general narrative we have about drugs, say something like cannabis, for example, do you feel that someone can be using to a point of dissociation and be unable to self-identify distress? They're no longer able to to see that for themselves. What about in a situation like that? I would have to evaluate the situation on an individual basis. I know in the popular culture, we think of it like that, but it frightens me when I think about what we think about in the popular culture. We are taking a mass approach to an individuated experience. And I think that's really what you're bringing forward, that there's deep nuance to usage and to, to its effect on that person's to that person's individual ecosystem and, and, and beyond it. And again, it's just, you know, we make advances in medicine all the time, oncology, neurology, all of that. But I feel that the field of addiction medicine is very antiquated and doesn't have a lot of the nuance that you're bringing forward. And so I think it's really, I think it's really powerful, especially for anyone who's in a relationship or in a family system where there is what has been identified as addiction, I think there's an opportunity to really understand and, and potentially like really 
really relook at that and explore like, what is that? Like, what are we really looking at? What are we really dealing with? And, you know, it brings me to want to ask you about this concept of harm reduction, because I think it's a really powerful paradigm that not a lot of people know about. Yeah. So in the book, I, I, I talk about harm reduction. I, I start off by saying that I don't like the pairing of this thing, harm reduction with drugs, because it's harms, drugs, harms, drugs, it's constant pairing. But the practice, what people are actually doing is just education, intervention, common sense. For example, I brush my teeth when I get up in the morning, that's harm reduction. I put on the seatbelt when I uh, get in a car, that's harm reduction, but we don't call it that. We just call it uh, common sense. In some cases we call it education, in some cases we call it prevention, but with drugs, we use the term harm reduction and we constantly pair harm with drugs, harm with drugs, harm with drugs. And that pairing shapes what we think about drugs, how we behave, what we teach, all of those sorts of things. So I, I ask people in the book, yeah, let's keep doing the practice, like handing out clean needles, giving people education about their drug use. If you're going to use a stimulant, make sure you drink a lot of fluids so you don't become dehydrated. Also be aware of your food intake, make sure you're eating, make sure you're sleeping. All of these things are what we call this harm reduction, but they're just common sense. So it, they're, it, they're important and I'm happy we do those sorts of things. And it's imperative that we do those sorts of things. And we also have these things they call the safe consumption facilities or supervised consumption facilities where people who are homeless or who have unstable housing, they can go and use their substance in this facility where you might have medical personnel like nurses and they have clean equipment, they have education, information, they have some of these sorts of things for the people who frequent these places, which is a good thing for people who have instability, instability in their housing, I should say. And but the thing that's important there uh, for people to understand is that we should be working on getting people housing and not uh, working on building more of these facilities. These harm reduction sort of strategies, they are stop gaps. They are not the sort of permanent solution. But sometimes people get caught up and they think like, this is the end all. It's not the end all. These are sort of emergency stop gaps. It makes me leap to this idea of what is a systemic solve to this problem. And you mentioned it a little while ago, this idea that the government could get involved with making sure that the drugs that people are using are clean so that we don't see as many overdoses as we do because in the past year, 87,000 Americans have died of drug overdoses during the pandemic and as a result of all of the stressors that the pandemic has brought. And so can you speak a little bit more to just this like future kind of ecosystem that you're imagining, like how could we keep people safer? How could we stop overdoses? Yeah, so you mentioned Oregon a little earlier. So Oregon, it's the first state to decriminalize all drugs. What that means in terms of the spirit of the law is that we will not be arresting people for using drugs. You can't sell drugs, I'm not saying that you can sell them, but you won't go to jail for using them. And so that's like the first state and that's a lovely thing. That's, that's, a, that's a lovely sort of uh, 
midway point. That's not the end all, but that's it's a lovely midway point. Now in Oregon, people may not go to jail, but we still don't have any clean or safe supply of drugs. And we still don't have drug checking facilities where we can test the purity of the substances that people are taking and make sure that they have, they, they're taking substances that are not contaminated with poisons or any other potential toxins. And so it would be nice if other states, of course, decriminalize all drugs, but also implemented these drug purity testing sites. They also had better education. That's the major thing that worries me, that we have a, a safe supply and that we have testing facilities so people can check out what's in their substance, because that's the thing that's really going to impact overdoses. And we have to also understand a lot of people during this pandemic committed suicide. I mean, it, it's been, an, and some of them use drugs to do so. And so we have to always be working on making our society more hospitable. And we have to always be working on taking care of people. And we, and since I study drugs, I ask people to start, think about well, how they treat people who use drugs. Why are you upset with a person who uses drugs? If they're not bothering anyone and they're doing their own thing, it's not my business. Why is it your business? And this, I hope, like Americans can ask, answer that question. Ask that question and then honestly answer it. Why do you care? And why do you, why do you think they care? What's your feeling there? I think we operate under this sort of puritanical way in the world. And that is, there's this sneaking suspicion, as H.L. Minkins once said, that someone somewhere is having fun. And in America, it seems as though we can't have fun. We can't have what they call unearned fun, quotes, unearned. And that's nonsense. And so people seem to be really judgmental about others enjoying themselves. If you say, uh, I'm just going to go and alter my consciousness to be euphoric and have a good time with my loved one. Great. That means, I think that's great, but some other people don't think so. So I think we are jealous about people having fun. I think there's really something profound in what you're saying that this, that we live in a culture in the United States that really does want to squash pleasure whether that's pleasure through drugs, pleasure through sex, pleasure through all of these, you know, areas. I, I think this puritanical piece that you were just talking about is really true because so few people want to talk about the pharmaceuticals that they're taking that aren't even illegal because it does one thing or it makes you look like a bad person. I mean, as someone who has ADHD and takes Adderall, I have no trouble talking about that. But I, but I know maybe five, 10 years ago, I might not have wanted to talk about that because I think people would, would view me differently, but it's been so helpful in my life. Really for me, the difference between like the lights being off and kind of foggy and, and me having a lot of environmental anxiety because I couldn't, my executive functioning was so poor without that. And having it and feeling like I can really participate in the world in a way that feels, you know, good to me. We definitely have all kinds of shitty things to say about people who are using illicit drugs that are 
quote unquote illegal, but let alone just normal pharma, it's a it's a problem too. Write down antidepressants. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. So last question before I let you go. So keeping in mind everything we've talked about, you you argue for drug legalization and regulation and not decriminalization. And you know, I'm really curious as to those distinctions and why someone who's writing a book saying that, you know, there should be a pursuit of pleasure and liberty around using drugs, you wouldn't push solely for decriminalization. No, decriminalization, well, let's talk about the difference. So when I say drug regulation, drug legal regulation, I mean treating drugs like we treat alcohol. You can sell it, you can buy it, right age, of course, you have these sort of minimum requirements. And, and then importantly, there's quality control. You can't have contaminants in your substance. There's a governmental sort of over, oversight for that. Decriminalization, people are in, uh, in spirit aren't supposed to go to jail for using, but no one can sell it because if you get caught selling it, you go to jail because sales are still banned. And so one of the reasons that I'm a proponent for legal regulation is because of this issue of no quality control under decriminalization. That means that people are still have to engage in this precarious sort of activity of purchasing these drugs on the illicit market that might be contaminated. That's one. And two, under decriminalization, if you live in a racially diverse state, it doesn't guarantee that you that you won't be rest, arrested for using. Just a couple quick examples. Think about Baltimore, who decriminalized marijuana in 2014. And between 2015 and 2017, 1,500 people in Baltimore were arrested for possessing marijuana. 96% of them were Black, right? So even though the drug was decriminalized, the cops still have discretion to mess with people for this drug. The same thing happens in New York City and so forth. But where you have racially homogenous places like Maine, Vermont, and those places, if you have decrim, great. And people are not going to be arrested for the most part. So decrim, the, my problems with decrim, it does nothing for uh, drug quality. And it also leaves in place this police discretion. And, you know, we're having all these problems with policing now where they're coming to light. And, and so I just want to take this out of the hands of police. Yeah, and it really, that really resonates with me. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for the interest. Thank you for tuning in to my conversation with Carl Hart. I hope you'll check out his fascinating book, Drug Use for Grownups. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.